0: Are you kidding me? Like, how are you supposed to start a sermon after that? Like, where do you start? A saxophone solo just happened. I was not ready for a Kenny G, Kanye West kind of Christmas. Were you? Let's give our creative team one more big round of applause. I really don't know where you go from here. Patrick Casey, I don't feel like I've been set up for success. Stephen, how about you come preach? It's your turn. I got an idea, how about this? How about I rap? I'll be like, y'all wanna hear me rap? I'm just gonna be real, this is gonna have, add no spiritual value to your life whatsoever, okay? This has nothing to do with my sermon or where I'm going today. It'll either be like a Christmas gift or the nightmare before Christmas, okay? Um, so uh, f- seven years ago, I wrote a song about my dog. Um, Judge me, I'm a millennial. We're in church, sir, so don't judge me. All right, so wrote a song about my dog, and my daughter loves it. She asks me to sing this song about my dog all the time. And so the other day, a couple of weeks ago, a couple months ago, she goes, hey, daddy, we've got a song about Ziggy, but where's the song about Raleigh? I said, that's a great question, baby girl. Um, If we got a a song about a canine, we should have a song about our daughter. And so 15 minutes later, this is what I came up with. I can't believe I'm about to do this. (laughs) Double R, Raleigh Ray, she's my baby, baby bae. She is crazy with a K from her mama. Check the name, ask to see her silly face. Yeah, I think it's pretty great. If it's playtime, never late. 45 till she can date. Raleigh, 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 Ray. Strike an R out of her name. Add a B, cause she's my bae. Did you catch that twist of fate? Even better, Ray means grace. Wrote this song just for you. Cause I love you to the moon. Raleigh, 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 Ray. (laughs) All right, let's pray and try to do something spiritual. Jesus. God, we need you in this place. And I'm just so grateful for a church that is full of life, that is full of such creative people and full of creative expression and full of fun and full of, full of you, God, the place where you're moving and you're transforming lives and you're raising dead things to life and you're calling people out of darkness and into light. And I'm just grateful that, that this is the kind of place where God shows up and where God moves. And so, Father, we just ask that as we open your word, that you would open your mouth, that you would speak to us. God, I pray that you would challenge our understanding of what it means for Jesus to be king. And God, I pray that we would li- leave here today living in the reality of your kingdom deeper than we've ever lived in it before. And God, while I have your attention, I just pray for the upcoming bowl games. I pray that the Florida Gators would win victoriously and I ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. It's gonna be a great day, people. It's gonna be a great day. It's Christmas. It's starting to feel cold outside. Guys, my, uh, my uh, spiritual mentor is in the house today. He doesn't know I'm going to do this, but right here on the front row, Ryan Rohan, this is the guy that discipled me. Ryan, can you stand up? Can you stand up, guys? Can y'all give him a big round of applause? I wouldn't be who I am if he wasn't who he is. You never know the impact that you could have on somebody's life, so pretty cool. So I don't know if, um, if you're just new to the conversation, let me tell you, today is part three of this installment of messages called Jesus is King. And uh, if you've been living under a rock, Kanye West, cultural icon, rapper, released a record called Jesus is King, and we think that it started a conversation about the heartbeat of Christmas. And the conversation's really simple. It's this. It's that Jesus is king. Now, those three little words, Jesus is king, according to Google Analytics, have been searched more since the release of Kanye's record than at any other time in history. And I don't know about you, but I love that I worship and serve a God who can use anyone and anything at any time to start a conversation about the king. And so today I want to talk to you about the kind of king that Jesus is. And we've talked in this series about the fact that Jesus is a king who brings a kingdom of light. We've talked about the fact that he's a king who brings a kingdom of freedom. And today I want to talk to you about the fact that Jesus is a king who uses a gospel. That he uses a gospel. Today I want to talk to you from this idea that Jesus is the king who comes with good news. This is the Christmas story. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 2, that's where we're going to be hanging out today. Luke chapter 2, and this is the iconic story of Christmas right here. That's what it says. It says, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you, let's say this together, good news of that will be for For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, and lying in a manger. Now, good news, okay, so the word gospel, okay, so think about the word gospel. In the Greek, gospel is euangelion, and euangelion literally means good news, okay? So the word gospel, you've gotta know this, the word gospel was used by kings before it was ever used by Christians. 2,000 years ago, when this gospel narrative shows up on the scene, it isn't what it is today. You see, when you hear gospel, you think gospel music, like Patrick Casey just slayed earlier, right? You think gospel music, or maybe you think like the gospel letters, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or maybe you think the gospel being the story of Jesus' life and the redemption that he brings through his cross and resurrection. You think about that being the gospel, but gospel was kingdom vernacular, It was ruler language before it was ever religious. And so when the angel says, when he shows up and says, I bring you good news of great joy, when Jesus talks about the gospel, when the apostles pen the Bible, when they write down the Bible and they use the word gospel, what they're doing is they're hijacking a word in their culture that would have been commonly used by kings. And they're turning it on its head. And and, and so like in the first century, when, when a new Caesar would have been crowned, they would have proclaimed the gospel. When um, uh, Caesar gave birth to an heir, they would have shouted, "Owen Gileon. When really a Caesar would do anything deemed noteworthy by the Roman elite, it was called good news. And they would share this good news, share this gospel throughout the entire kingdom. Quick history lesson. In, um, In the first century, when um, Rome, which was the powerhouse of the day, when they would go in and they would invade a foreign land, they would occupy that land, overthrow them, and establish Roman leadership, they would send in these gospel messengers, these ouangileons, these people who would bring this good news, and they would go to to the new area, and they would say, hey, we've got good news. You're now under Roman rule, which was really Roman oppression. But Caesar wanted to frame it up as this good news message that Rome has come and Rome is saving you. Um, when there was battles or wars, they didn't have news or Twitter, which means that they didn't know what was happening on the front lines, but it also meant that they were way less stressed and way nicer to each other. Hashtag Twitter trolls, right? And so they didn't have that. But what they had was they had these messengers. They had these good news runners and they would be on the front lines of battle and they would run back and they would report what was happening from the front lines and really interesting, one really interesting historical note is that these gospel messengers, um, they were paid for good news and they were punished for bad news. Have you ever heard the phrase, don't kill the messenger? You ever been the messenger that didn't want to be killed? You ever had to drop some bad news on your spouse? Like, baby, I just got in an accident and it was my fault. Like, you're a bearer of bad news. This is where that comes from. And so these messengers, once the outcome of the war was um, certain, once they knew what was going to happen in a battle, these gospel messengers, they were like marathon runners that were literally positioned at the edge of the battle, and they would take off running once the outcome was certain. And then there were these watchmen and watchtowers who would look out as far as the eye could see in the distance, and this is so interesting. They would be able to tell. They would watch for the dust to start kick up. And they would be able to tell by the way that the runners' legs were churning what the outcome of the war was. Just by the movement. They were so trained to know that if if their legs were running and they were kicking up and dust was flying everywhere, everywhere, it meant good news. It meant certain victory. But if they were doing the survival shuffle, if their legs were a little bit more out in front of them, if there were a little bit more tail between their legs, then they knew that it meant that a new king had been crowned and that the war had been lost. And so when the angels come and they say in Luke chapter 2 that we bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, they're hijacking the narrative of culture. They're hijacking the narrative of Caesar. And they're saying, hey, Caesar, your rule, your reign, it's over. A new king has come. A new king is crowned. And the ultimate war has been won because God is here. God is breaking through. God is stepping in. This is so massive for you to understand for the first century Christians. Have you ever wondered why the first century Christians live such radical lives? They're living under this tyranny of Rome. They're living under Caesar as this oppressive ruler. And so when this gospel gets proclaimed that a new king has come, immediately Jesus would have replaced Caesar in the consciousness of the first Christians. They would no longer think about Caesar as the one who brings good news, but about Jesus as the one who brings good news. And this would have created such rivalry, such tension in the Roman Empire. Like, do you do you know that like when Jesus resurrects from the dead, boy, everything changes. Like for three days, I want for you to know Christianity is a joke, it's like a losing bet. It it, it was almost as if none of what is today in the Christian faith was gonna happen for three days because Jesus was defeated. He was overthrown like every other king. He claimed to be this Messiah who could bring about change and restoration, but he went into the grave. He was put on a Roman cross. Rome had once again won. But on the third day, When Jesus resurrects from the grave, when he dies on that Roman cross for your sin and my sin, and he victoriously resurrects from the grave, a new ou and gileon would have been proclaimed. All of a sudden, this understanding, these people who had this understanding of the Roman euangelion, the Roman gospel, the Roman good news of overthrowing every other country would have been challenged, because there would have been this new gospel that didn't just overthrow Roman rule, but beat Roman death. Beat Roman death. And so all of a sudden, the cross and the resurrection stand as this ultimate protest against the establishment. The resurrection screams to the world that Caesar is powerless, and now the first century Christians begin to live in the full logic of that belief that if Jesus rose from the dead, that not Caesar or anything in all of creation has power over us. I want to ask you this question. What if the good news of the gospel means that nothing has to have power over you anymore? What if the announcement of the angels is that all the other powers of this world are just pretenders? I've got some good news for you this morning. Anxiety is just a con artist. And shame is just a sham. I want for you to know that fear is a faker, that lust is a liar, that religion is a ruse. That Instagram is just another imposter that you don't have to allow to have power over you any longer. This is the good news of the gospel and I'm preaching way better than you're responding right now. (laughs) Jesus has come and he is the king that has been crowned that overthrows every other king. I want for you to imagine what if you could live a life where nothing had power over you anymore? Where no fear could contain you, no comfort could cripple you, no pressure from society could push you down. What if no politician or election or economy? What if no stress or sin? What if not pressure from parents? What if not the desire to obtain wealth? What if not the loss of a job could shake your world? What if you knew that all the powers of this world were really just pretenders and that one king has been crowned and that his name is Jesus? that he overthrows, when he resurrects from the dead, everything that would try to stand in opposition to you and to me. When Jesus conquered the Roman cross, when Jesus conquered Roman death, he dealt a knockout punch to every other king. But tell me if you live like this. Tell me if you still live under the tyranny of the temporary. Tell me if you still allow momentary things, momentary pursuits, momentary ideals, momentary goals to consume and occupy your attention and your affection and your emotion. Tell me if you don't allow these these tiny kings, these 2019 version of Caesar's to sit on the throne of your heart and rule your life, to get your worship, to occupy your eyes. Tell me if you don't still live under the tyranny of the temporary, of just trying to appease culture, of just trying to fit in, of just trying to make it work, of just trying to appease all these other things when you've got one king who should rightly be crowned. Tell me if you don't still live under the tyranny of the temporary. You know Christmas. Christmas is the personification of this. You know it is. Like, you know that you've been working for something that ain't going to matter 15 minutes later. Tell me you've been spending a lot of minutes shopping for Christmas. You've been thinking about that great gift, that perfect gift. You've been scanning Amazon lists. You got it picked out. You planned it. It's going to be perfect. And, and, and you've got this, like, this idea in your mind that you worked so hard for, right? That on Christmas morning, your kids, they're gonna rush down and they're just gonna be perfectly behaved. They're not gonna wake up till 10 a.m. and they're gonna come down and they're gonna bring you milk and cookies and they're gonna be, you know, just perfectly behaved and they're gonna sit and they're gonna take the picture and then they're gonna rush in and they're gonna go, oh my gosh, mommy, there's so many more presents. They're not gonna go, that's it, right? That's not gonna happen. They're gonna walk and they're just gonna be so overwhelmed by all the things and all the work and all the effort that you put in. And, 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 and when they get their present, they open the first one, they just pause. They look deeply into your eyes, and they say, Mom, I don't know where I'd be without you. You've made all my dreams come true. I will go mow the grass now to show my gratitude. Right, like this is, this is what we've worked up in our mind, right? We spend all this time, all this effort, all this attention focusing on this Christmas morning that's gonna just give us all this joy and happiness and excitement, and it's gonna be a Christmas card. But you know That 15 minutes after your kids wake up, your house just looks like a war zone. Wrapping paper everywhere, three toys already broken. You already stubbed your toe twice. We live under the tyranny of the temporary and what it delivers is something that vanishes in an instant. When you serve any king other than Christ, when you allow them to rule and to reign as supreme, as utmost, as as the bringer of good news in your life, I just want for you to know that your heart is going to get hijacked, that you're going to miss out on what was really supposed to happen. I want to remind you today of some really good news. It's going to be good for somebody. You only got to live for one king. That's good news for a tired mom. That's good news for a burnt out man. That's good news for a culture who's made hustle king. That's good news for a culture that's made the grind God. I want for you to know I'm fine for your soul up here. For you to live in the reality in the direction that the good news of Christmas is that you only have to serve one king. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, I appreciate that y'all tried there, okay? That was a great effort. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now I gotta be totally real and transparent with you guys. Like as a pastor, every time I read this, This scripture, I struggle with it. I'm like, Jesus, I feel like you're lying to them, okay? Because I know the rest of the Bible. And I know that in other parts of the Bible, Jesus goes, hey, take up your cross and follow me. I know that he says that if anyone would come after me, he must first deny himself daily. That if you don't hate your life for my sake, if you don't lose your life for my sake, then you'll never truly find it. And so I'm looking, easy, light, rest, and I'm like, I don't know, Jesus. It feels pretty difficult. Like, there are days in this culture where it doesn't really feel easy and breezy to follow Jesus. It doesn't feel like light and fluffy and friendly and a joyride. That's not what it feels like to me. And so I'm looking at that scripture going, I don't know. But that's until I start to realize that what Jesus' offer is is for me to live for one king, for the one true king, to not live for all the other kings that promise things that they cannot deliver, to not have to live for culture and for success and for family and for whatever else is being marketed today. All of these other kings that only want something from me, I don't have to live for. I get to live for the one king who loves me and does it all on my behalf. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of, Chris, of, of Christmas. This is good news for you and for me. This is what Jesus has come to give. The greatest Christmas gift that you could give yourself is to get rid of all your other kings. The king of pleasure, of image, of success, of self-absorption, of comfort, and to crown Jesus king. Now many of our natural assumptions about what would happen if the king showed up, don't go quickly to good news, right? We don't think that if the king comes, that he's bringing good news. Many of us, in our minds, just naturally gravitate towards this place that if the king comes to my house, the king knocks on my door, we got a problem, right? Like, it's like daddy coming home. Like, oh, will you wait till daddy comes home? Like, that's what I think if the king shows up, right? That if he shows up, he's showing up to punish. He's showing up because I did something wrong. He's showing up because I'm in trouble. Like, our imagery, our understanding is, oh, if the king shows up, you're probably getting struck by lightning, right? That's the natural understanding. Because that was the understanding of what happened when every other king in culture and every other king in history showed up. They came to rule with power. They came to rule with terror. They came to bring bad news. And what makes the gospel of Jesus so unbelievably good is that he comes with good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. You see, Caesar would have ruled with a gospel a good news of oppression. Jesus comes with a gospel of freedom that brings great joy. Unbelievable joy. Unparalleled joy. Um... This is the thing that you've got to know about the Christmas message is that it's a message that motivates emotion. It's, it's a message that demands emotion, that creates emotion, the gospel message is. It's, one, it's, it's news of great joy. There's this emotional response to this gospel. Now, I want for you to know that there's an emotional response to every gospel. Every gospel that has been proclaimed on planet Earth, every king that is telling you the news of what will happen, if you follow them, preach a gospel. you got to know this. The problem is the gospel of every other king is fear. The gospel of every other king is fear. So we'll do it like this. So money, the the gospel of money says this, that if you get me, that you'll be secure. That's the gospel of money. The good news of money is security. But the motivation of money is the fear of what happens when you don't have enough. That's why Biggie Smalls, great prophet, Biggie Smalls said, more money, more problems. Because money, that's what it does, is it creates this fear of, is, is it gonna be enough? Am I ever gonna have enough? It's fear. Culture. The gospel of culture is acceptance. If you listen to culture, you dress like culture, you talk like culture, you subscribe to cultural beliefs about God and people and sex and marriage and money and time and alcohol and drugs. And If you subscribe to culture, what culture says you should do, then the gospel, the good news is acceptance. But the motivation is the fear of rejection. Of okay, well, if I don't, then I'm not gonna be loved, I'm not gonna be included, I'm, I'm not gonna have anything. There's this fear that's actually motivating our, our trust in the gospel of culture. What makes Jesus' gospel so much more radical is that his motivator is your joy. That he comes to motivate with your joy, that it's, he's playing on your emotions. He's going, listen, do you know what I'm after? I'm after your joy. One of the things that frustrates me so deeply is when Christians try to divorce emotion from following Jesus. You ever heard people do this? You ever heard people go, hey, hey, brother, faith is more than a feeling. And, and I get what they're saying there. Faith is absolutely more than a feeling. But if you would just look for five seconds at the Bible, you would see that the fundamental response of every person who receives the grace of Jesus is to be filled with emotion. How about on that first Christmas morning. Let me show you. The shepherds, this is what their response. They went with haste. They ran very fast emotionally and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered emotion. What the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured emotion. Of all these things, pondering emotion. Them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God emotionally for all they had seen and heard. The response of the person who receives grace, who sees the Savior, is to be full of emotion. You see this all throughout the Bible. It's tattered throughout the pages. The woman at the well. You remember the woman at the well? This girl. She's standing in a place that she's not supposed to be. She's an adulteress. She is dirty. She is sinful. She gets the greatest news that could ever be that the God who knows everything about her, that knows that she doesn't just have one husband or two husbands or three, she has five husbands, and the man she is currently living with is not her husband. She's an extramarital affair. Jesus knows everything about her, knows where she's been, knows what she's done, and loves her anyways. It's the best news ever. She gets this news. Her response, what we see in the scriptures, is that she runs back into the town and she leaves her one possession at the well she left her water pail. Can you imagine the emotion to have one thing? I don't know, your cell phone. And for you to get news that is so good that you go, I'm leaving the iPhone. You're so caught up in the significance of this moment that you emotionally move. You leave that place and you move. And you move. This is what happens. You see it with David when he dances himself naked. You see it with Paul and Silas when they're in prison. You see it with the demon-possessed man when he goes into a village and tells everybody and doesn't care what people think about him. It is an emotional response to what happens to people who come and have a face-to-face encounter with grace. It's an emotional response, and that emotional response is joy. And if you could just get in your heads, if you could get in your hearts, how deeply, how passionately, how aggressively and dangerously Jesus is after your joy. I think Christians live with this belief that God just like wants them to make it in the end. It's so sad to watch Christians live lives of just trying to make it in the end. As if what God has achieved for us, what God has created for us is a life where we just hold on We would just clasp our hands as tightly as possible and hope that we make it in the end and we're tattered and angry and bitter and frustrated and burnt out. Way too many Christians are living this way. And if you can know that Jesus zeroes in on your joy, that his pursuit is your joy, his heart is your joy, his goal is your joy and his joy is your joy. If you can know that he wants to move you emotionally, that he doesn't want you to live some stagnant life, but he wants you to live on fire, full of desire, that he wants you to dream deeply, for you to have this confident assurance, regardless of circumstance. The thing about joy is that it's immovable. It's unstoppable. It's it's unchanging, unshifting. It's so good. And it's what Jesus has come to bring to you and to me. Joy. emotion. Emotion is so important. You know this, that emotion is important in relationship. Every guy knows this. Emotion is so important in relationship because emotion arouses action. That's what it does. It arouses action. Okay, guys, you fell in love, right? Y'all remember this by show of hands? Or do we just got a lot of single fellas in the room, okay? When you fell in love, you saw her and it changed everything. You saw her and it changed. You're like, oh, a shower? I'm gonna take one now. And I'm gonna go buy some new clothes and get a job because girls think jobs are sexy. And I'm gonna stop playing video games I'm I'm get my act together. I'm gonna learn how to open a car door. It's gonna be brilliant, right? It arouses action, emotion does. And you remember the early on emotion in a relationship? Like you remember at the beginning, like the, just the puppy love phase? I love the puppy love phase. I did, like I loved it. I, and I remember it with my girl, with Kayla, like early on in our relationship, we're like, you know, we're on the phone like till 2 a.m. in the morning. Y'all remember this? You're on the phone until 2 a.m. talking about who knows what. And then when it's time to hang up, what do you do? You're like, hey, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. All right, we'll do it at the same time. One, two, three. You still there? <laughs> Y'all remember that? Just how easy it was to fall in love. It's so easy to fall in love. It's much, much more difficult to stay in love, isn't it? much harder to stay in love. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned that helps me in my relationship with my girl is that if I can go back to 13 years ago when we were on those phone calls and I can remember that she's the same person today that she was back then, if I can go back to the beginning and remember the innocence and the beauty and the romance and all of the things about her personality and her character and what made her unique, if I can go back to the beginning that it has this way of restoring the emotion in my heart, And what I love so much about Christmas is that it takes us back to the beginning. We go back to the start where there was this baby in a manger who showed up to change everything for you and me. Like you can't miss this. You can't miss the emotion of this baby coming. I would be so bold to say this, that if you neglect the emotion of the gospel, you're going to negate the work of the gospel. If you neglect the emotional reality that Jesus loves you, that he sees you, that he's come for you, that he knows your sin, he knows your circumstance, he knows your fears and where you're faking it, and that he loves you anyway, if you negate the emotion, the paralyzing emotion, the igniting emotion of God loves you, then you're going neg- to negate the work of the gospel that wants to move you to action to change the world. But Christmas brings us back to the beginning, to that moment. You remember when your eyes were open, when all your doubts flew out the window, when you knew that God loved you, when you knew that your sin was real but that it had been paid for, that freedom was possible, that resurrection life was available. You remember that when you were like lifting your hands and burning your ACDC records? The beginning of that emotion. That's That's what I love about Christmas is it takes us back to that place where we see this baby, this little vulnerable baby that started everything that stood as the savior of humanity. You know, babies create joy. Unlike anything else, babies create joy. They do, we know this. Babies call grown, cause grown mans, gr- man's, men and man's to start speaking in tongues. You ever seen this? A grown man, confident, conservative theologically, sees a little baby, goo gu ga ga, goo go, ga ga, goo goo ga. Every time I see a man do that, I'm like, I hope that baby has the gift of interpretation. That is a very funny joke if you've read Corinthians. Babies create so much joy, so much emotion. You don't believe me? Let me prove it to you. Joy. I told you. I'll prove it to you again. Joy. I'll prove it to you again in a way you're not expecting. Joy. Joy. Even Baby Yoda creates joy. Because that's just what babies do is they create joy. I remember when um, it was about four years ago that Kayla and I decided that we were going to start trying for a baby. So we pulled the goalie and uh, we started reading Song of Solomon in our quiet time. Bought a lot of Marvin Gaye records. Bunk to go, Some of you are so uncomfortable right now. I love it. And um, right about this time that we decided that we were gonna start trying for a baby, uh, I was tasked with leading a mission trip to Guatemala City. And um, it was gonna be a mission trip full of about 50 high school students. And um, it was a big deal because a group of these high school students I'd been discipling for the last four years and they were seniors and they were gonna go off to college and this was my last chance to lead them, so it was super significant. So I was going to lead this trip right as the time that we were um, trying for a baby, but we found out that um, the Zika virus was starting to spread throughout Latin America. And if you're not familiar with the Zika virus, the Zika virus is a, a, a virus that is passed to humans via mosquitoes. And if you get the Zika virus and you're not pregnant or you're not trying to get pregnant, it's not a big deal. You just get like a flu for a week and then you'd be fine. But if you get the Zika virus when you are pregnant or when you are trying to get pregnant or if you get the Zika virus after you're pregnant, you or your spouse, it is extremely dangerous. It causes um, very likely birth defects for the child, birth defects that are so severe that oftentimes become fatal. It is life-threatening if you get the Zika virus when pregnancy is involved. And so Kayla started to have this sinking um, feeling that I shouldn't go on this trip, that that I just shouldn't go. But y'all, I'm a pastor. And at the time, I probably had a little bit more of a holier-than-thou mentality than I would like to admit. And I was like, listen, God's got me, okay? I will walk through the fiery furnace. I will kill a mosquito in Jesus' name, all right? Like, I got this. And so she agrees. She kind of lets the conversation go. And for the next several weeks, months leading up to the trip, she doesn't say a word until the week before the trip is supposed to happen. I kid you not, I'm supposed to leave on Friday. She comes to me on Tuesday. I come home from work. I walk in the door, and Kaylee goes, hey, I need to talk to you. And we sit down, and she starts weeping. That's not my girl. She's crying uncontrollably. And she goes, I don't don't know what to tell you, but I know that I've been praying, that I've been on my face, that I've been seeking God, and all I know is you're not supposed to go. I can't tell you why, I don't have the concrete reason, but I just feel like you're not supposed to go. And Kayla and I made this um, agreement early on in our marriage that in times when the other one of us is being, what's the spiritual word, stupid, that we would allow the other one to be God's mouthpiece towards us. And if you've never made that commitment, you need to. It's It's a great discipling principle in your relationship with your spouse. And so Kayla says, I need you to not go. And I said, okay, baby, I won't go. And I pick up the phone and I call the team and I let them know that I'm not going. And it's a big deal, man. You got to replace tickets and scramble to find a leader. And you got all these kids and parents who are stressed out because the student pastor isn't going. It calls all these things to come unraveled at the seams. And, and so then we just kind of sit in it and the emotion of it and the reality of it. And we're just trying to deal with it. And, and so that night we end up making Mexican food for dinner and um, I, I make these margaritas that will make you want to get baptized again in Jesus' name, okay? And so made a couple of those, and right before we were going to sit down for dinner, Kayla goes, oh, if, if I'm going to have one of those, um, I'm going to go take a pregnancy test. I mean, I took one yesterday. I already know that I'm not pregnant, but I'm just going to go take one just to be sure. And so she heads up into the room, and she takes a pregnancy test, and she sits there, and she lets it read, and she comes downstairs, and my girl is pregnant. Yeah, we can celebrate that. We can celebrate that God is faithful and that God works miracles and that God is alive. But the, we were overwhelmed by emotion in that moment. We were overcome with more emotion than I can put into words. We were high-fiving and fist-bumping, put on Marvin Gaye all over again. We were just, man, so much joy that we had a baby. But do you know what there was even more joy about? The fact that our baby was going to be saved, Our baby could have been subjected to a hostile environment where who knows what could have happened. I could have made this decision if this test would have never been taken, if I would have never said yes to not going, that our baby could have not been saved. We're in joy because our baby was saved. The joy of Christmas is that a baby has come to save. That a baby showed up to save you and to save me. That's the joy of Christmas, that in this manger, we see this little picture of innocence and perfection that has come for the salvation of all mankind. Jesus is the baby who comes to save, and if Christmas could bring you back to that moment, back to that feeling that there is this God who would send his one and only son as a baby to save you and me because he loves us so much, this is what Jesus came to do. He's come To save. This is what makes the birth of Jesus Christ so much radically different from the 360,000 other babies that are born every single day. It's that Jesus came to save. Look at what it says in Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. It says, she being Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sin. It was his destiny from the beginning. Mark Chapter 10, verse 45, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This baby came to die. This baby was born to die. Jesus is the Savior. And I know that the popular belief in culture is that you're good, that you're okay, that you're great, that you slay, queen, like I get it. That you're a rock star and you're awesome and you deserve a trophy, and you can do no wrong. But I want for you to know that the message of the Bible is that you're more sinful than you could ever imagine. You are sinful and broken, and I am sinful and broken and prone to wander, easily give in to temptation, have rebelled against God. You are more sinful than you could ever imagine, but the good news of the gospel is that you're more loved than you dare to dream. More loved than you dare to dream. And this baby comes to bring your salvation. He comes as a sacrifice for you and I, and there's no greater joy than that. There's nothing that should arouse more emotion in your soul than knowing that this little baby loves you so much that he would give his life for you so that you could be in a right relationship with God, so that you could be set free from sin, so that you didn't have to be defined by your past, so that fear know, no longer had to have power over you. This is the good news of the gospel. And then it's all tied together with this little phrase at the end that I love so much. It's good news of great joy for all people, for all people. I've gotta say this, if the gospel isn't good news for someone, then the gospel isn't good news for anyone. If the gospel doesn't have implications for every person in every situation, if it doesn't show up to the person who is in depression and anxiety, the person who's at the end of their rope and the person who seems unworthy of it, then it's not really the gospel that Jesus preached if our understanding, our logic, our theology around the gospel isn't this big and this grand, it ain't the gospel. The gospel is for all people. The qualifier is, are you a person? Let's just raise your hand by show of hands. Are you a person? You're in. It's the good news that is for all people. Do you have an understanding of good news, of great joy for all people? Like what about is your gospel big enough? Is it rich enough? Is it real enough to have good news for black families who are suffering the oppression of systemic racism? Is your gospel, is your good news big enough for refugees who are being kicked out of our country because of an issue of your tax dollars? Does your gospel have good news for them? Does it have good news for the single mom who's all alone? Does that have good news for the addict who's still trapped? Is there good news for the lost and the lonely, for the broken and the hurting, for the guy who's trying so hard and crumbling under the weight and the pressure to perform? Is there good news for him? Is there good news for the irreligious? Is there good news for the unrepentant? Is there good news for the still searching and for the skeptic? Is there good news for your family, for your friends? Is there good news for the people who will never grace the doors of a church on Sunday? I believe that this gospel of great joy is good news for all people, and it's our job to tell every single one of them. It's our turn to become the herald of this great news. And so my request, and I think your king's request this Christmas season, is that you would take this gospel you would take this good news to the hurting and the broken and the people in your life who you know need it most, who in your life is bankrupt on joy, whose joy has just run out. They need the good news of the gospel just like you and me. The good news of Christmas is that we've got a king who's come and that he's come for all people. Let's pray, Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reality that you are the king who has come and that you are the only king who is worthy to be crowned. And God, I pray for the people in this place, who feel like the gospel's never been for them. The news has never been good enough for their situation and their circumstance. They've always felt disqualified or overlooked, like they weren't good enough or smart enough or religious enough or moral enough. God, I pray that the good news would break into their heart right now, that they would know that Jesus is real, that God is alive, that he has erased their shame, that guilt can be gone in an instant, that their eternity could be so secure. If you've never crowned Jesus as king today and you wanna do that, we just wanna give you an opportunity to. We wanna let you know that you're invited to be a part of this kingdom, to be a part of this family, that the king has come for you. And so if you do, it's just repeat after me this simple prayer. King Jesus, I need you. I know I've sinned against you, but I know you love me. I thank you for the cross. It should have been mine. I believe you rose from the dead. And I want to rise to new life with you. I let go of my old life. And Jesus, I crown you king. We want to give you an opportunity to mark that moment. If you prayed that prayer on the count of three, we just want to be able to celebrate with you. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm just going to ask you to lift up your hand as a sign of surrender and celebration that you're crowning a new king today. One two, three, amen, and amen, amen. Praise God. Let's celebrate that our King is on the move, that he is saving people's lives, that people are seeing Jesus. I'm gonna invite you, if you raise your hand today, we're gonna stand in the next couple of minutes and worship, and I'm just gonna invite you to go back to the I Raise My Hand booth where we would love to mark that moment with you and give you some next steps in your journey. Church, I want to invite you to stand together and let's celebrate the reality that Jesus is King. Amen? Amen.